when we say the American dream, you can define that a lot of different ways. But I think this uh, dream has sort of been in decline for decades. Baby boomers are concerned that they're never going to be able to retire because they won't have enough money. Since 1979, a 200% rise for the top one percenters. It's not class that is causing people of color to be sicker and die younger than their white counterparts. It's race. If you're moving up, effectively someone else is moving down. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. A pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. Welcome to Pitchfork Economics. I'm Nick Hanauer. Last episode, we talked about economic growth, what it is and where it comes from. But today, we'd like to devote the episode to the American dream. Is it dead or not? And today, joining me is Tushi Tahat, and he's going to talk about his experiences with the American dream. I'm going to share some of mine, and uh, we're going to get right into the status of the American dream. So welcome, Tushi. Thanks, Nick. I'm Duji Tahat, former troublemaker of Civic Ventures. I now run a program called the Communications Hub at Fuse Washington. I was born in the Philippines, uh, arrived at the U.S. Uh, at age five, and I think like so many hungry immigrants, our narrative very closely mirrors the American dream. We landed in LAX without any idea of what was going to come next. We, uh, my mom had family sort of up and down the West Coast. So we just ended up in Yakima, which is where one of my mom's uncles owned a farm. There's a big Filipino agricultural population out there. Both my parents arrived to the U.S. with PhDs. However, you know, it took forever to find a job. And so before they got professional jobs, they were working alongside undocumented immigrants in eastern Washington picking fruit. So we helped on the farm until my dad got a job with the county cleaner authority there. Why did you guys leave the Philippines? For greater opportunity. In addition to this notion that you could work hard to do well and that you'd be rewarded for it in America was that there are more ways to work hard. There are a whole range of opportunities. If the PhD is the golden ticket, the U.S. is where you can turn it in for any number of great deals. Obviously, that big move really inculcated in all of us the idea that, like, you know, if you work hard enough, you can make it happen. And actually, I think even the struggle at the very beginning of them having to sort of swallow their pride to just make it happen really reinforced that narrative. Well, it's not that much unlike my own story. My mom was born in the United States, but my dad's family fled the Nazis in the late 20s and 30s. My dad was born in Germany, and they fled Germany first to the tiny country of Liechtenstein and then eventually through Portugal to the United States, first in New York and then settled in Seattle, where my grandfather and my great uncle bought out of bankruptcy uh, the kind of company that they had back in Germany, which was a bed pillow company. And uh, they bought this tiny company and began to re rebuild it. But what, what I'm struck by, I mean, if we're just being brutally honest, one of the really interesting parts of our stories that is similar is, while we both did come from striving families that worked super hard, you know, like we didn't start at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Like, Two people who had PhDs coming from the Philippines obviously had a, a massive advantage over two people who 
didn't have any education coming from the Philippines. And my family was a relatively prosperous entrepreneurial family, a, fa a business family. And so when they got to the United States, they were not penniless. They had a little bit of capital and they certainly had a bunch of skills that were super useful, as did your family. And it's just interesting to note that the rags to riches stories that people tell have more nuance than we often account for. Certainly, if you look at the theoretical rags to riches stories that we tell about our most famous entrepreneurs today, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, these were essentially rich, privileged kids who started out way ahead and got even farther ahead. And going from the very bottom to the tippy top is far rarer than it looks often. And if you peel back the layers, people start out farther ahead than it might appear. To your point, I mean, Oprah's the exception to the rule, right? Her story might mirror the American story, but like most rich people started off rich. In a privileged situation, mm -hmm. right? With beginning advantages. Yeah, and it's, it's funny that you point that out. It was really formative that my parents and I worked in the fields. But to your point, like we weren't in the same situation. They were able to get a professional job shortly thereafter right. in the way that like the people we left behind there like were not. So, you know, in this episode we wanted to talk more broadly about the American dream and about mobility in particular, right? The idea of the American dream is that you can start off at the bottom and make your way to the top. Um, uh, it's also the idea that your children will do better than you did. It's the idea that if you work hard and play by the rules that you can have a successful, secure life. All of these ideas are inextricably intertwined. I think it's important to acknowledge a couple of things. It's just objectively true, if you look at the numbers, that mobility in the United States has declined as inequality has stretched the rungs of opportunity farther and farther apart, it becomes, not surprisingly, harder and harder to move from rung to rung. By way of example, in the 1980s, the top CEOs of big companies earned about 30 times the wages of the median worker. Today, that number is someplace between three and 400 times. So just in an objective sense, it has become much harder to travel the distance, the economic distance from the median worker to the top because you have to go essentially 10 times farther. We often think about mobility as moving up, but since economic success and status in, in human societies is always relative, we must be cognizant of the fact that if you're moving up, effectively someone else is moving down. Not all of us can be at the top of a pyramid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In order for there to be a pyramid, uh, there, there has to be a tiny group of people at the very top and a whole bunch of people at the very bottom. And so not everyone can have mobility. And that's why I think that Americans need to think harder about what the objective of economic policy is than just to accept this idea of mobility. Yeah, and and to this point, we've been talking a lot about mobility, um, sort of in one person's lifetime too, right? But this has obviously implications beyond that, and just right. sort of speaking generationally. Certainly, that's what uh, is at the forefront of the immigrant when they move, right? Is sort of this idea of generational mobility as yes. well. We know that most Americans born in 1940 ended up better off in real terms than their parents at their same age, right. whereas only half of the people born in 1980 surpassed their parents' uh, family income. We, we have changed our society in a way which has made it so much harder 
for people to lead the kind of lives that our parents led in a world where the richest people are running away super, super fast economically from everybody else. We've made it really, really hard for people to have relative mobility, to have intergenerational mobility, and for people to hang on to this idea of the American dream. We talked to Christian Cooper to understand what's happening specifically around cycles of poverty. He wrote an essay called Why Poverty is Like a Disease that takes a look at the epigenetics of poverty and how it gets transferred, not just wealth, but the genetic coding of poverty gets transferred. Uh, this is a former derivatives trader who grew up in deep poverty in Appalachia and has some really interesting things to say the time he made over $700,000 a year, but he's still choosing to not have children because of the deep imprint in his DNA of scarcity. So my name is Christian Cooper. I have uh, had a long career in finance, but more recently I've been exploring some really interesting ideas about poverty and drawing on my experience in, in Appalachia. Hi, Christian. This is David Goldstein. I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, pretty much every issue you touched upon in that piece, I've been pondering for months about the causes of intergenerational poverty. So to get your first-hand account and your thinking through all the way down to the epigenetics, it was just really exciting to see other people going into the same space. You're going to love the book then. The perspective title is The Poverty Inflamed Brain. That title is really important to me because it, it gets at every aspect of what the essay touched on, which was how our brains respond to poverty. And by the way, poverty can exist in many forms. We're not just talking about being born in a dirt cabin, right? So. We can respond to trauma and adversity as children in a lot of different ways that only isn't specific to just financial poverty. On this episode, we've been talking about the American dream and whether it still exists. America is still the place where dreams can happen. They can happen here more than anywhere else in the world. But we have to open that up to a much wider audience. America is the land of opportunity, still is, can be. It's a much smaller needle to thread, uh, but it is still possible. It's just not possible for as many as we need to sustain the system. There's a, a growing divide between uh, some of the uh, more affluent high-tech cities on the coast and much of the rest of the country. We have this growing spatial inequality in America. Correct. Absolutely. Yes, we, we have uh, lower unemployment, and yes, the stock market is 50% is higher since the election. But 80% of the country isn't participating in that equity rise. Intergenerational poverty, the, the type of poverty that you grew up in, is not something that can be quickly solved. The deprivations of childhood have a lifelong biological impact in terms of how your brain is wired, in terms of how you respond to stress, and there's that epigenetic component where the uh, consequences of stress can be passed on for generations. So if this is a generational problem that could take generations to solve, where do we start? We have to increase the runway of children. And I call it runway because, you know, I remember counting, you know, how many days had gone by since we got the last electricity disconnect notice. You know, I knew 
how many days of power we had left before the power would be cut off. You know, I'd watch mom adding water to the milk. So I knew we were getting low on food and I knew like, okay, we got three or four days of runway left. So I go back to this, you know, horrific experience as a kid in the book and I talk about how do we extend children's runway. So the concept there is to increase the certainty that they have about their life. So I think we have broad policy tools that are very blunt right now. We have uh, food stamps that are not enough. We have uh, WIC programs that provide food and, and other types of support that are not enough. What Stanford actually has done as recently as a month ago, they now have a wearable patch that we could actually quantify children's stress response. It's almost like taking their glucose level through the skin, like for somebody who has diabetes. So the quantification is the first step. You know, we first have to quantify those at-risk kids who are stressed out of their mind, and it may not even be apparent, because when everyone lives like that, everyone's experiencing the same thing, right? Like, you could go back to my hometown today, and nothing has changed, and I could, take a hundred kids out of the school, I could sample their, you know, their stress hormone response and it would be astronomically through the roof. But they have clothes, they've eaten, like, but it, that's not the point though. So I think quantification is the first step in understanding that it all starts with this inflammatory stress response at a very early age. Um, I'm curious, this is Duji, and I think the thing that's really cool and fascinating about what you just said is you know, at the shop, we're interested in narrative shifts. And certainly, like, the narrative around poverty is particularly related to cash poor, right? Being yes. cash poor, yeah. and that's how you quantify it. And you yeah. are talking about um, something else, you know, the physiological reaction to the effects of being cash poor, right? Yep. So there are a couple degrees removed. And so using science, I think in your essay, you do a really great job of sort of breaking that narrative up are there other ways that we should be thinking about changing the narrative around poverty? One of the key ways is to understand that everything we are doing right now about poverty is still treating a symptom as opposed to a cause. You really got to understand how far under the skin this gets when you're born that way and when you live that way. And so changing the narrative is understanding that People don't overeat and smoke and use payday loans because they're stupid. They're doing it because they're trying to survive. I basically had to leave home uh, at 17 to just to get away from the church. In my first apartment, I remember, you know, just being so ashamed because I would run into people I know at the store and all I could afford was like a bag of potatoes uh, to make potato soup and that would be like what I ate for a week. So I think the right would look at that situation and would say, oh, well, you know, just make better decisions. Don't use payday loans without really understanding that that's pretty, you know, when you only have two or three days worth of food left, you're going to say, you know, you know what? Screw the light bill. Uh, let's let's get a pizza, guys. To someone on the outside that may see that as a bad decision, it's the one thing that can give you a, just a moment of relief. And so when you live like that, you live in a constant craving of any kind of relief. Mm. And so that's, that's a payday loan. That's a Domino's pizza. That's an extra bag of Doritos. That's a pack of cigarettes. You know, a, a lot of people are familiar with the idea of the marshmallow test. 
right. uh, where you know you, you give a kid an option. You can have one now, or if you wait ten minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And it's allegedly a great predictor of future outcomes. But when you grow up poor the way you did, um, it kind of makes sense to take the marshmallow now. You know, I kind of see that study to be a little bit simplistic, but it does right. get at the root, root cause of if things aren't going to get better, well, why bother? A decision like that is going to seem supremely irrational when, in fact, it is the most rational thing that person can do just to get a little bit of relief. The way I've started to think about it is the, the way you break this cycle of intergenerational poverty is to stop raising children in the conditions of poverty. And uh, it, I'm sure you're familiar with the Raj Chetty study on uh, kids who were moved. Uh, their parents got vouchers to move into housing in low poverty neighborhoods. And they found that the younger the kids were when they moved out of their high poverty neighborhood into the low poverty neighborhood, even though their parents earned no more money, had no higher rate of employment, these kids had remarkably better life outcomes. Uh, very similar to what you see with high quality early learning. If you give a family a couple extra hundred bucks a month, anyone around that family is going to know that that money is there and it's going to be like, hey man, can you give me 50 bucks, get my power back on? Hey, I, just, I need 10 bucks for gas. I need this. I need that. And of course, the answer is always yes, right? I've done it with my family. I put, I put my brothers through rehab. I've paid college. I've paid for my grandmother's mortgage. Like, of course, we're happy to do those things. But when those programs end, it still doesn't remove those root causes, right? So you still have that brain that's waiting for the other shoe to drop, that is primed for maladaptive behavior in, uh, in stressful situations or uncertainty. We, we especially respond negatively to uncertainty. But I would imagine that in that study, we can't wave a magic wand and go back and we would look at the inflammatory response of those children. Just having a different place in life and a little bit more certainty is extraordinarily soothing. So it gets back to this idea, just give me a little bit of runway. Give right. me something to hope for, right? Until we start using the first the quantification that I talked about and then identify those at children at risk. Then we can talk about, okay, well, how do we, you know, what's causing the stressor? Is it just money? Is there something else going on? And that's how we begin to remove, move beyond the blunt policy tools that we now seem to be using into something that's more refined. I'm curious how you feel about basic income, whether that at least would relieve that environmental stress from uh, on families that they got some sort of direct cash payment. The response from the right on that issue is typically it's throwing, you know, good money after bad. We've been doing this for generations and it hasn't fixed anything. I would argue that and again, I wish I had a better way to think or to communicate this idea that we don't have a cultural problem. We have a capital problem, which means we have corporations that are engaged in financially extractive practices that completely gut our safety nets and any hope for the future. So it's it's going to be shareholders and the owners of uh, these investors are going to ultimately have to take lower returns on equity. Because if we don't, I'm not sure our nation 
can sustain the levels of inequality and hopelessness that I now see? And so the, the answer is yes, basic income, absolutely. Where does that money come from? It's going to come from lower returns on equity um, to corporations and corporations actually paying taxes uh, and getting away from this myth that it's fine that Amazon doesn't pay any taxes and wants to put people in cages. And, you know, it's just insane that this is where, we, where we've gotten to in America. You know, in your essay, you write that you uh, make a lot of money now. But you're choosing used to, to used to <laughs> at the time of the essay. Um, but you're uh, choosing to not have children. You know, I think at my most, I was supporting maybe 15 people. So again, take that money, take half away, and what someone may expect that I, you know, squirreled away in the S and P 500 went to rehab, it went to mortgages that never got paid off, it went to food and all these other things that, that I was supporting. So again, no matter how much money you make, it's still expensive to be poor. And so I don't have children because I have no hope for the future, still not optimistic about even my own future like because who knows when i'm going to get the call and it's going to be like uh, a family member that doesn't have insurance and now has cancer and can you help out and the answer is always going to be yes but that may be the last hundred grand that anybody has you know and suddenly you're back to zero so you know that's really why i call the book the poverty inflamed brain because it never stops and i could never imagine the additional stress of having children at this point in my life i just i just can't yeah, well, I think it's really important, the work you're doing and, and the writing you're doing. I think the most yeah. destructive thing that I've, I've seen, I'm 55. I, I saw it happening in my lifetime, certainly in the 90s, it shifted this way toward you don't want to give poor people bad incentives. Right. And that shaped so much of welfare ref reform. And you know why it's so counterproductive? It's because the rich people and the poor people have two different rule books of life. And what a rational choice looks like to a rich person is the worst possible thing for a poor person. And so it's we're only creating incentives once you understand the brain and the rule book a person born poor lives through. Well, thank you for your time, Christian. Uh, this Thanks was a pleasure. So much. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank Talk you. Talk to you later. As you might expect, we're not the only people who think the American dream isn't all it's cracked up to be. Hi, I'm Sarah Lebovitz, a producer at Pitchfork Economics. The Human Condition, a magazine created here in Seattle, dedicated their entire third issue to just that idea, that the American dream is a fallacy. We spoke to one of their contributors, Jordan Farlin. I am a youth worker at a social justice nonprofit in Seattle. I am a, an activist and the chairperson of Anakbaya in Seattle, which is a political organization fighting for the liberation of the Philippines. And I'm also what we call in the Philippines a cultural worker, um, an artist, but specifically an artist for the movement. Both of my parents immigrated from the Philippines from a pretty young age, around 10 and 14. They immigrated here but grew up pretty Americanized. So by the time I was born, we had pretty Americanized concepts of, of going through life. Um, and I completely bought into it. it. The American dream was this idea of hope so that we could have a better style of living and we could work our way up to, to a certain amount of wealth. We could have a certain kind of shelter if we worked hard enough. I went into business school of all things because I wanted to help minority owned and 
in women-owned businesses. Um, I worked at corporate. I, I like th thought I was doing all of the right steps. And somewhere along the way, I got politicized and I really started to understand the American dream as a lie, as false, as something that is not attainable for all people. We go into foreign nations and we use tactics like war to displace people, but then tell them that if they come here to the U.S. that it's going to be fine if you work hard enough, that you're going to be able to make it. But then when they get here, the, the material conditions are not actually there for them to survive, right? Or they get pushed away at borders or they die in detention centers or, you know, X, Y, and Z. So my idea of the American dream has completely flipped. There is a level of privilege to be in the U.S. And also coming to terms with U.S. imperialism pushed me out of my homeland. It made it so my parents weren't able to, to thrive and survive in the Philippines. So the only reason that I'm here in the U.S. is because I could, we couldn't make it there. When my parents were growing up, they were fleeing martial law in the Philippines under the dictator Marcos. So they knew very little about choice, about what they, what they could talk about, what they could listen to, what they could believe. And then when they came to the U.S., those, those choices were opened. They were able to access education, but then were also met with racism, were at the poverty lines, unable to really eat their own foods, like their, the foods of their home. The only thing that they could grasp at that point was to hold on to the hope of the American dream. And as they had kids, we are, my brother and I, you know, like we were able to see what it's like to have a single mom and a single dad living divorced in the U.S. as immigrants, creating small minority-owned businesses and seeing how hard that was in a very white town. Going to the Philippines for the first time was a really life-altering thing for me, as many like homecomings are for people. Over 6,000 people in the Philippines are leaving each day to find work overseas. It is definitely an expectation that if you live in the U.S. that you're, you're making it, you're good, even though most of the Filipinos here are working three jobs. Um, they barely get to see their children. So there's also this like idea of an American identity that a lot of Filipino Americans, especially in, my, in the younger generation, are really battling right now. But I think that our generation is very much poised to be able to see the, the fallacy of the American dream. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. My name is Kiara Bridges, and I'm a professor of law and a professor of anthropology at Boston University. I, I seem to recall in the 90s, there was sort of a glowing white liberal perception that that race wasn't an issue so much as class in America. Right. And you've done a lot mm -hmm. of work um, sort of finding the divide between race and class as two separate issues. And I was wondering if you could give us an idea of what you've been working on in that context. 
Sure. So we can't deny that racial inequality exists, right? You can drive through any major metropolitan area. You can turn on the news. You can, you know, look at statistics documenting um, just the health and well-being of of people, and you will see that people of color um, are not doing as well as their um, white peers. And um, I think that the post-racial explanation of that, which is a very liberal, but as well as a conservative one, um, is that the real problem is class. The real, you know, the reason why um, we have mass incarceration disproportionately affecting communities of color is a class issue because the people who are in those institutions were poor before they got in in the jails and prisons, and they're definitely going to be poor after. And then I talked about the safety net, right? So that's the the liberal slash conservative view would be like well, that's the class issue. Like we just need to do better with. Um, taking care of the poor and the poor are a socioeconomic group. Um, and so my work has been very critical of this uh, rush to um, explain racial inequality in terms of class and class inequality. And one of the things that I've, I've done is show that even when you control for class, um, racial uh, minorities, uh, black people, non-white people, are still not doing as well as their um, white counterparts. And so, you know, I work in the field of um, maternal and infant health and, and rights and justice. And um, maternal racial disparities and maternal mortality, is, it ought to be an embarrassment to the U.S. Um, you know, relative our, to our peer nations, you know, people are dying during childbirth or um, or shortly thereafter at rates that would be unconscionable to our so-called peers. And then when we fold in racial disparities on top of it, black women are dying three to four times as often as white women on the path to, to motherhood. A lot of people like to explain that in terms of class, right? So they say, oh, it's only, you know, the reason why three to four times as many black women as white women die during childbirth or shortly thereafter, well, that's because people of color, black women, are bearing the burdens of poverty at a disproportionate rate to white women. And so that racial disparity in maternal mortality is just a function of poverty, Black women are poor, so poor women are going to die more frequently than wealthy women. And so, ta-da, you get your statistic of three to four times as many black women are dying um, as white women um, during childbirth. But the thing is, racial disparities and maternal mortality persist even when you control for class, which means that, you know, if I look at a, a white person with my same income, um, I'm still more likely to die than my white counterpart. Um, and in fact, infant disparities, or racial disparities in infant mortality actually increase when you move up the, the income ladder, which is to say that the poor black babies and poor white babies, they have this, you know, a more similar chances of living beyond their first year of life than wealthier black babies and wealthier white babies. So, it's not class that is causing people of color to be sicker and die younger than their white counterparts. It's race, right? And it's the relationship between race and class. And so big, 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 important takeaway from my scholarship is to push against this post-racial sense that we're beyond race and our racial problems are really just an effect of our class problems. So, you know, this episode is about the American dream. And, 
you know, obviously that's a broad subject and a complicated issue. So, you know, what should we do, I suppose, is, you know, the first order question. I really believe in the people (laughs) and I believe in social movements and I believe in social agitation. I I think the, the, the biggest changes that we saw in American life and the biggest changes that we saw in our norms and our values right. and our ethical commitments came from social movements. This is my reference to, you know, the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 1950s. It was like people um, were unsatisfied with merely, you know, <laughs> writing letters to their to their congressmen. Of course, people were disenfranchised, so there was no congressman that was committed to representing them. But it was it was it was not the 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 sense was not that there are official avenues through which we can produce the change that we demand the country um, to to reflect, but rather it was like we ourselves, we individual private citizens have to organize, come together and shake the core of the country so that the country becomes uh, more reflective of the things that it proclaims to be committed to. I think what I hear you saying is that like we could pass a whole bunch of laws. And, and to be clear, I'm sure you would agree. There would be some laws that you would love to pass and that would be, right. <laughs> that would be better. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But what you're saying is that that will be insufficient. We have to change the norms and the culture too. just stipulate. You raise the minimum wage from what it is okay. today to $20 an hour. Mm-hmm. And you had a mechanism to make sure that everybody had health care and the median family income rose from 59,000 to 80,000 or 90,000. And the proportion of people who were under the poverty line went to some tiny figure. What happens to those disparities between... Right. They close, don't they? I'm not actually convinced that they will close. I think think that we live in in a country in which it's not unreasonable at all to think that they will persist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, that um, people might live longer in the world that you're describing, mm-hmm. um, but black people will still die mm-hmm. five years earlier than their white counterparts. Racial disparities in maternal mortality, it's been the same since before the civil rights movement. So back in the Jim Crow days, back when black and white people couldn't go to the same hospitals, back when, you know, they lived in completely, I mean, they still live in completely different neighborhoods, but like there would be violence if you, if a black person tried to cross into the white neighborhood. Racial disparities and maternal mortality were the same. (laughs) So I'm skeptical, right? I think that the world that you're describing is incredibly better than the world that we're living in now, right? Because we will have less people dying just from sheer lack of basic necessity. But I I don't think that what follows from that world is one in which we have done better on the race question. I think that we can be doing just as poorly on the race question while everybody's life um, has improved significantly. Okay. Again, let me put you on the spot. Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, Like, how do we Mm -hmm. get people to be less racist? How do we solve this problem that you describe, this this relatively intractable problem? We have to 
get rid of the institutions that make these problematic ideas, these racist ideas make sense. So in the world that you're describing, if it's a world in which mass incarceration is like this, this historical anachronism, that's something that we used to do and that we're incredibly embarrassed about. If the world that you're, that you're suggesting is possible is one which the, the welfare state is like, of course, we have a very generous welfare state because we're trying to beat the generosity of our of our peer countries, and it's not a stigma to be a beneficiary of the system. If we have a humane immigration policy that recognizes that people, there are push and pull forces, and that globalization is something that might be inevitable, and that there are going to be times when people who are not citizens and not residents of this country are going to want to move to this country because there are jobs opportunities here. If your world is not just one in which there's just equal, you know, economic opportunities for all, but like also a just one in terms of the institutions that are present in the society, as well as the ones that are absent in the society, then that might actually be a world in which racism goes away, or at least is only something that we can find in like the aberrational um, few. Right. So I don't I don't think we disagree, but I think that as long as your vision is one that takes into account more than the economy, right? Yeah. If it's, if your vision takes into account what institutions actually exist in this society with a just economy, um, then it might actually be one in which we can combat racism and racial inequality too. All right. From your lips to God's ears. So, Digi, today we wanted to tackle the issue of the American dream. And is it dead? Hopefully not. I think as I reflect on it, I think what's really important to highlight is, first, that if we're honest with ourselves... We shouldn't get too wistful about the good old days of the American dream, because clearly a lot of people were excluded from that. Uh, women were excluded from that. People of color were largely excluded from that, although <laughs> it's worth reminding ourselves that African-American families are doing better before 1975 in many ways than they are today. But there's a lot of power and validity to that mid-century idea around the American dream, because it is unambiguously true that life got better for the majority of Americans in a really big way and at a really fast pace for a really long time. And that lasted basically until the trickle-down revolution that Ronald Reagan initiated in about in late 70s, early 80s. And we're also talking about mobility, which has also been a really important part of the story of the American dream. But Mobility in the American dream are in this uneasy tension, if you look at it carefully, because the idea of mobility means moving up. And if you're moving up, then someone else is moving down. And we certainly don't want to have a, an economy or a set of economic policies that depend on that or, or sort of begin and end with that sort of zero-sum view of how the world should work where some people will move up and other people will move down, and that's, that's life. I think for the American dream to have real resonance, you want to have a combination of those two things. You know, you want to create an economy where uh, everyone has a reasonable chance to live a life of dignity and security, 
both in their working lives and in retirement. And you want to have an economy where people who work insanely hard and who are very, very capable uh, can come from anywhere and make it to the tippy top. And the combination of those two things, an economy that provides generally for people to have a dignified and secure and stable life, and also for an economy that both permits and rewards people, you know, high performers and, 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 and enables everyone in the society to become a, a high performer. That really is worth shooting for and something yep. worth working for, something we've had to a certain extent, but less and less today. Yeah. And I think the thing that you're getting at is, you know, we have to create a s- circumstance in an economy where the effect of luck doesn't have the magnitude of effect that it has today. Yeah. By luck, you mean the circumstances of birth, among other things. Race. Although, uh, as an entrepreneur, I will tell you that (laughs) luck plays a big part. Without a doubt. Uh, (laughs) Even if you're very good, um, luck luck is important, too. You know, fundamentally, we need to think about economic policy as a mechanism for including a broader and broader number of people in our economy in ever more robust ways. You know, when we do that, not only, you know, sort of restore and enhance the American dream, but we, we also just generally make the economy grow faster and create more prosperity, which, if we're doing it right, will be good for everybody. Do tax cuts for rich people really create growth? In the next episode, we're going to examine tax policy, who pays and who doesn't. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.